welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. <laughs> For real. We can do better, people. All right, let's start unpacking. Joined today by Michelle Perrin, an EMT crisis worker with CAHOOTS, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. Michelle holds her master's in criminology and criminal justice and is in her second year of her master of social work. She spent five years as a volunteer firefighter EMT with a combination fire department, eight and a half years working in children's mental health, and eight years as a 911 dispatcher. She's been with CAHOOT since 2016 and has responded to everything from mental health situations such as suicidal ideation and behavior, psychotic episodes, and grief following death, to medical issues like wound care and overdoses. The team at CAHOOTS handles issues complicated by substance abuse and homelessness, and all situations are viewed from a humanitarian harm reduction lens with the goal of, self, with, with the goal of client self-empowerment. Although the team values their relationship with public safety, they often respond in lieu of officers, which oftentimes helps mitigate potentially volatile situations. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. So uh, I know Miranda gave you that introduction, but can you share a little more in depth about what you do with CAHOOTS and the organization in general? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me and, and letting us lean into this uh, conversation. Um, I'm excited about that. So CAHOOTS is actually part of a larger organization, uh, White Bird Clinic, which started out of the counterculture of the 1960s, so about 1969 in Eugene, Oregon. So the founders were looking for kind of a, a more humanistic service model um, for social and medical issues that were occurring during the day. And they didn't really see anything that was matching what they wanted, and so they started one. Um, so they wanted to make sure that they were providing these services, which included crisis services. They had walk-in and telephone crisis services at the time. Um, around 1989, they had a small crisis unit that was starting to go out into the field to meet people. And a conversation got started with the police. We're still trying to figure out kind of, you know, how that happened um, with the police department about how those two organizations could work together to provide crisis services. Um, the name is kind of uh, tongue in cheek. You know, the, the police were going to be in cahoots with a bunch of hippies and the hippies were going to be in cahoots with a bunch of police. So it kind of stuck, you know, and the acronym makes sense. Um, so that's kind of how that we became a department of Whitebird Clinic. They've continued to provide a lot of services that are really important to us doing our work. It, you know, homeless department, medical, dental uh, behavioral health and substance use counseling, day use centers, and still have a very robust walk-in and telephone crisis. So as far as uh, CAHOOTS, we're a 24-hour service now in the city of Eugene. We also have 18 hours of overlapping where we have a second van on the street, and we're 24 hours in the city of Springfield, which started in about uh, 2015. So each van has a crisis worker, which is somebody who's trained in mental health, um, and it also has a medical worker, which is either an EMT or an RN. Several, or actually most of our 40, 35 to 40 employees are cross-trained, so they can actually do both jobs. You may have two people on the van, but you actually have, you know, a variety of ways to handle something, which makes it uh, 
a lot better for the clients because maybe some, you know, one of our approaches not quite working and then the other person can step in and do a different approach and allow for, you know, for that flexibility. So we are tied into a public safety communication system. So we're dispatched through the police department, the same dispatchers that dispatch police, fire, and EMS. They dispatch us. We have police radios on. So we are in contact, direct contact with uh, law enforcement all the time. Um, so we're kind of that fourth arm of public safety, um, which makes us really unique. It makes our model very unique because um, dispatchers can send us first or like and actually in lieu of another first responder. It's honestly, you have a beautiful model, right? And you guys have been around for a while and it works. And I think a lot of people aren't really aware that this is happening. You know, we talk about defunding the police and can it be done? And here you are doing this work and the wheel doesn't need to be reinvented, you know? So I'm curious, what were some of the challenges that arose from partnering with Whiteberg Clinic and the police department and how were these challenges overcome? So, I mean, there definitely, there have been challenges since the beginning that have kind of allowed us to bridge this gap between kind of the community, the social service, this more humanistic uh, model and traditional public safety. So we've been bridging that gap for, you know, over three decades and trying to figure out how to stay in that uncomfortable in-between place. Um, so, you know, we kind of pushed our way into the system, like we wanted to be able to help clients. And so we were willing to kind of jump in there and, and get in cahoots with the police department so that we could get access to those calls so that we could start mitigating some of the, the harm that was happening because the traditional public safety system wasn't designed to support our failing social service net but they were the only ones that were left to, to kind of handle those calls. So we, we just kind of pushed our way in. Um, and what was kind of interesting is prior to George Floyd's murder, we actually were doing some of our own internal work where we were being pushed because of some things that were occurring um, within our own team, where we had some really amazing, brave BIPOC um, coworkers who were saying, you know, there's stuff that that we need to look at that may not be in line with anti-racism and you know we thought we were a pretty progressive team so we're like no there's you know you know we have this together and they're like here's your mirror no you don't um so we i mean internally we realized that you know we were being challenged with you know we're in a very white area of the country i mean oregon's notorious for being a, you know a state that started by saying you you know bipoc you can't even be here like you can't live in the state. And so, you know, happen to, you know, first of all, face that very harsh reality that, you know, we think we're this great, you know, progressive little Western state. And they're like, yeah, no, you guys are, you know, have a lot of, uh, you know, white privilege, a lot of systemic racism that you have to be willing to actually tackle before you're gonna be able to actually serve any other population. So they, they really showed these mirrors to us and, we learned that we had to we had to unlearn messaging we didn't even know we had, and that was not only individually, and we were really lucky that you know our very few BIPOC coworkers were willing to put in that emotional labor to teach us. Like we tried to be very aware that it was not their job to help us unlearn. It was not their job to teach us. Um, and we stayed very conscious of, of checking in with them to make sure that it was still comfortable for them. Plus, we reached out to, to BIPOC educators that were willing to come in and, you know, help us unlearn and relearn messages we didn't even, we didn't know we had. And as an agency, like some pretty significant kind of, you know, systemic racism and just inbred white privilege that was within our processes got, you know, 
pulled up. Like this all happened even before, um, you know, it was probably a, about a month and a half, two months before George Floyd was murdered. So before we got launched into the public eye as this national model, we were already struggling with these things, um, which kind of shows that, you know, in, we are kind of a model for what everyone's struggling with. You know, we're struggling internally, we're doing our own work, we're doing, we're trying to do work externally. Um, you know, nobody's perfect in this and we all have a lot to unlearn and a lot to learn. So that's been the biggest challenge is just continuing to bridge that gap. Um, there was some, you know, some issues about which side are you on? You know, um, are you on the community side? Are you on, you know, you know, are you on the side of the oppressed and marginalized, which is part of your mission, but you're in, you know, you're in cahoots, you're in partnership with the police department and the police department was saying, do you back us? Are you, you know, at odds with us? And we were like, look, we just want to do our jobs. <laughs> we just want to continue, you know, providing good care to both the community and the police. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we just want to go out and do our work. Um, you know, so that internal and external. Um, so one of our biggest challenges is still, you know, how to show up for oppressed and the marginalized communities, especially when they have to access us through the police department. You know, our eyes have kind of been open to the fact that, you know, this, this, they may, they may not call us, like they may not try to access our services because of our model, no matter how badly we want to say, no, it's okay. It's not, it's not okay. So you know, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, the importance of having um, cahoots around because, you know, we know part of the dialogue that's happened nationally, but I think internally in social services and, um, you know, departments that have handled things like this are that police are not trained to be able to, to manage all of these different calls that they receive. Um, you know, based on 2016 research from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, it's estimated that 20% to 50% of fatal encounters with law enforcement involve an individual with a mental illness. So how do operators decide, you know, when, when a call comes through, um, how do they decide when to send police or when to send cahoots? How does that work? Um, and how often are police actually needed to help assist in cases uh, when cahoots is called out? So, I mean, the police department is a, you know, quasi-military organization. So they have policies and procedures that had to be put into place to kind of dictate, you know, priority of calls, how this, these calls were going to go through um, their dispatch system, which I imagine has evolved over the years. I mean, I, I imagine, you know, if you look at a dispatch console today, it looks very different than it did back in 1992. Um, so, you know, the policies have had to change as well. Um, you know, kind of like as public safety has looked at, you know, has had an increasing number of calls that are inappropriate for them. You know, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, who else can you call, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week if you have an issue? And, you know, unfortunately, society has decided that the police are the answers to all their issues. Like nobody's talking to their neighbors anymore. Nobody wants to do any of the work themselves. They just want an officer to come out and tell somebody to do something, you know, so they're, they're kind of put in, into that place. Um, so dispatch itself, you know, so they're trained um, to somebody can call the 911 or the non-emergency police number and they can ask for cahoots directly. 
Like they just say, I'd like cahoots. So the dispatcher is gonna briefly make sure that there's no crime or danger involved in that call. And we've had a lot of dialogue with them about not wanting to be over curious. Like people are calling for us, not, you know, they're not wanting to be questioned by the police, you know, even through a representative on the phone. And so just get enough that, you know, that to gather enough to be able to send us in lieu of the police. Like, so no other, other first responder needs to go. Um, somebody could call and ask for an officer, but it's for a situation that's not officer appropriate. An armed responder doesn't need to show up to a number of the calls that you know people call in with. And so dispatch can decide, this sounds like a, a cahoots only response as well. And so they will send cahoots out in lieu of the police again. Um, we can also go with police. If it's a call that's kind of one of those gray areas where they're not sure, it may you know, need a little bit of additional um, you know, police support, maybe some authority behind it, we can go together. Or the police can request us themselves. Like they go out on the call, they realize that it's more appropriate for a mental health worker or it's, it's just not a crime. It's not one of those calls that they, they need to handle. They can request that we go. Um, so there were some numbers that Eugene actually kind of pulled to look at, you know, um, cause no, no one was really doing any kind of data collection before this. Like we just were doing direct care. We weren't researchers. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of questions people ask about, you know, how does this work and what are they want those, those quantifiable numbers. And we're like, we don't know, we're just doing this thing, you know, so we're having to scramble to collect, you know, what researchers and what funders and what, you know, the scientific community want for us to prove what we're doing. So Eugene police did, you know, try to quantify some things for us last year with their um, crime analysis. And so in, in 2019, they found that we, we handle cahoots or, yeah, CAHOOTS went out on 20,746 public initiated calls for service. So like just, just under 20,800 calls. Um, of these, 13,854 of them were CAHOOTS only calls. Like, so that was, you know, 13,854 times the police did not go and talk to somebody. We just went and talked to somebody. Um, and so, and often, you know, we don't, need to have anything. We don't need to have another responder come out to handle whatever the situation is. Um, and so they did, they did pull some numbers as far as, you know, how many times did we have to ask for emergency backup? Like an officer coming right now, lights and siren, we need your backup, uh, code through backup. And they found that it was less than 8% of the calls. And a lot of times in my experience, it's because of the voluntary nature of our work. We do not go hands-on with anybody. We don't try, we, we don't take away anybody's rights. We can't make them do anything. So if we go out on a situation and somebody is a danger to themselves or others, um, they're walking in the road and they won't stop walking in traffic. They you know, are saying that they're gonna harm themselves but, and they won't safety plan with us, but they're not willing to go to the hospital with us. Like we need to call for an officer if that person is an immediate danger to themselves or others so that they can come. Sometimes we need that state sanctioned authority to um, make somebody do something so that they don't harm themselves or others. And, and even then, a lot of times the officer will come and say, you're going to do this thing. A lot of times it's going to the hospital for a mental health evaluation, but they still have the option to be transported by cahoots. Like the officer's going to go and they're going to, you know, they're going to use that, you know, police officer hold once they get there, but it's still a more humane way of dealing with somebody's mental health crisis and getting them in, you know, they're in our van, they're not in handcuffs in the back of a patrol car. 
they are, you know, we, we really try to make it be the, the most appropriate um, situation. I mean, there have been no cahoots workers in our history that have been killed and there's been very few assaults. And mostly it's been because we just got too close in a situation where, you know, we got brave. <laughs> and sometimes people are, you know, they might be a little high or they might be a little, um, you know, in a, a state of psychotic that you just want to really make sure that you stay, you know, a little bit of distance. <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately it sounds like it's a safety net, you know, and you guys provide a service for communities to feel safe and you know that they can reach out to but even with that you know with, with such high numbers calling out calling into 911 for cahoots you still mentioned that citizens um, face barriers with that right we can only imagine that that happens to specific communities do you think it's had an effect on access to services for any communities in particular and if so how have you pivoted to continue to continue to provide services and supports mm -hmm. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, going through police mm -hmm. to access us is definitely the largest barrier. Um, we've began conversations with a variety of marginalized and oppressed communities that we've reached out to and asked them, you know, why, you know, why wouldn't you, con or is there anything that we can do to provide services, you know, in a more um, appropriate respectful, culturally aware manner. And really the, you know, it's, it's hard to mitigate that if they don't want to go through the police department. So, you know, we've been in talks with uh, the Eugene um, police chief has been pretty, pretty open and progressive about recognizing that and wanting the service to be accessible to everyone, um, trying to bridge that gap between the, between like particularly communities of color in our area. Um, so we've talked about, it looks like what we're going to be getting is, um, like on the phone tree, when you dial, you get like dial one for police, dial two for cahoots is going to be an option. They can just dial four and they get, get cahoots. Um, they've talked about giving us our own phone number um, so they don't have to dial 911 or a police number. Um, and also about giving us our own dispatcher, one that's trained and just is working with us. It's still going to be within the system because you know, like I said, it's important for us to be part of that public safety system. It makes this work valid. And, you know, it puts it into the same league as traditional public safety. So being apart from it, we wouldn't be able to be as effective. But even those three things, they really are just still a different way of calling the police to access us. You know, so we haven't, honestly, we haven't found our answers yet. We're still in, there's a lot of discussions going on. There's a lot of, um, you know, trying to figure out, listen, there's a lot of listening sessions where we're saying, hey, is there any way that we, you know, we can provide services in a way that you're going to be willing, you know, to access us? We talked about pagers. There's people on our teams that don't even know what that is, a pager. <laughs> but we even talked about going old school and saying, okay, can we have a pager where you can directly, you know, maybe we go through an organization that you're comfortable going through and they can page us directly. So the conversations are happening. Um, at the same time, we recognize that, you know, we've got a lot of our own internal work to do, you know, so we definitely want to make sure that we are right. We have done our own anti-racism work before we ever try to show up for anyone else. Because if we're showing up as white saviors, just like the system, then we are not doing anyone any good. So maybe this is a good step back for us while we're figuring out these issues to do our own work to make us appropriate to show up for communities of color. 
I'm curious, are there demographic differences between Eugene and Springfield? Or because I know it was mostly with Eugene, and then you said, I think it was 2015, you started servicing Springfield. Do you see demographic differences between those two communities? Um, they're very different. They have very different community styles and very different policing styles. Um, Eugene is, is a college town. Um, it's, you know, people are highly educated. I believe socioeconomic status is higher. Um, I don't, I really don't know what the numbers are as far as what our communities of color look like, um, in Eugene or in Springfield, but I know Springfield also is a very blue collar town. Um, it's very industrial, um, lower education, lower socioeconomics, more, um, it's more, more rural. It has a lot of rural around the edges of it. And so it's, and then the police departments are very different. Like Eugene is, has been known for being a very progressive department. I mean, they went in cahoots with hippies in, the, in 1989. Like most departments would be like, I don't even think so. That's not a thing we're doing. Um, and Springfield has been a little bit harder to convince them that, you know, this partnership makes sense that, you know, but even since 2015, like, the patrol officers love us. Like they recognize that they are not trained, that they do not, they were never intended to handle a lot of those social safety net calls. And when we show up and we are the trained professionals and we are like taking over, they're like, we're out. We are happy to be out and go do policing things. Right. Um, so, I mean, it can definitely be a challenge when, you know, and it just shows that every community is going to be unique. So any community that's looking at starting a Kahoot style model is going to have to look internally. We're not a cookie cutter model. We weren't a cookie cutter model between the two cities that we worked with. Mm. Um, and so no other community is going to be able to just plunk us down and say, do it like this. They're going to have to have a lot of community conversations, like all of the people from the community that are invested, marginalized, oppressed, people of color, they need to be at the table to talk about what theirs looks like. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that we're reaching more pockets of people that we weren't before, but we don't have any data to support it. Well, I mean, when we think about this, you know, the type of approach that you guys are using, some people may think it's more expensive to provide stabilization and psychological crisis management services. Like it seems like adding an extra layer. Um, but the truth is that it actually could save police departments a lot of money. Um, it's just more about diverting services to the correct places and, and having the correct people respond. So from mm -hmm. a financial standpoint, can you share how much of taxpayer dollars were actually saved in Eugene? from having this type of a program? Yeah, I mean, the financial piece is always gonna be a big consideration. I mean, that is definitely, we're talking about government agencies. They need to be good stewards of the taxpayer's money. I mean, I think all of us want that to be a thing. Like we don't wanna see the money, you know, we want our money to be going towards the things that we care about and the things that are actually going to solve problems. Um, it's really hard to quantify. Like we have been, we haven't been able to get exact numbers from Eugene or Springfield police yet. I think they're still trying to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because it's not really apples or oranges. Mm -hmm. Like I know in the beginning there was, you know, talk of, well, you know, one, you know, funding a Cahoots van is the same as, you know, funding or funding 24 hours of Cahoots was the same as funding like two or three officers. Like, so, but there's really a hard, it's hard to try to figure out what that actually looks like as far as cost. 
Um, I did read somewhere that somebody had estimated that it's about an $8 million savings and we only charge $2 million. So we're pretty inexpensive considering if you're just looking at, it the, at the dollars. Um, and also there, we do have numbers that show that we, we did save an additional 8 million in healthcare costs because we definitely look at what we do as a public health crisis. Like this is a public health crisis, it's not just a public safety issue. Um, so $8 million in healthcare costs because of our diversions from using an ambulance or going to the hospital, going to the ER. And so that savings returned to our state Medicaid. So we're saving money in ways that may not necessarily just be from the police department, but definitely, you know, there's, there's a big chunk of, you know, when you divert money into preventative, you're going to save money in the end. Well, and then I think about, you know, with so many killings, like this payout to families as well, right? Like there's this huge, yeah. <laughs> this huge amount of money because they're not trained and here's a program that's trained. So let's just divert to the experts, right? So, you know, it's, it's so connected. And aside mm -hmm. from the financial impact, there are plenty of benefits across the board that, you know, are not financial. So, you know, what, well, what are the other benefits to community supports like this? There are so many. I mean, when you stop looking at, you know, even the money aspect, you know, you're looking at like one of the things that research has shown is that neighborhoods that have crime only have one constant variable and it's unemployment and poverty. So that is the only constant variable. It is not race. It is not, you know, gender. It is not a geographic location. It is unemployment and poverty. And so police are not designed to handle unemployment and poverty. Um, so when you start looking at the preventative things, like it's not even, you know, I mean, there's no, there's no cost assigned to, you know, the, you know, the, the calls that I've gone on where I've been able to meet somebody where they're at, like allow them to be the leader of their own solutions um, to hear them. Like, especially a lot of, you know, when you look at, you know, marginalized, you know, we're not even just talking race, we're talking like people who struggle with homelessness, people who struggle with substance use. They are not even seen. People don't see that, you know, that the person that's standing there with the sign, they don't even look at them, you know? And so when you show up and you are like, I see you, you are a human just like I am and you deserve dignity. Like there's no cost. You know, you're, not, you're never going to be able to put a dollar sign on that. And to be able to connect people with the appropriate services, like how to get them housed, how to get them mental health support, how to get them even just, you know, crisis respite for the day so that they can regroup, figure out what they're going to do, you know, have, you know, transportation to staff services, like get them over to the service station so they can get a shower, so they can go on that job interview. You know, there's just so many, I mean, humanizing people like what I, I mean you just you can't quantify the cost and I could never even quantify the feeling that comes from an interaction like that like it is an empathetic human to human connection that I think just makes the world a better place well and you know we there's been a lot of talk obviously with defunding the police it's a common topic that's come up and a debate kind of going on you know in our country especially right now with the current climate um, and many people think it just can't be done 
and I think they hear defunding and they think we're talking about getting rid of police entirely. Um, and it's just sort of like a misunderstanding of what it actually means. So, you know, here you guys have a model that's been running, it's running well for nearly 30 years. So what do you think the concerns are of the population that's against defunding the police? And are there cities that are trying to replicate your model? Like, have you guys gone out and worked with any other cities? Um, and if so, how is that progressing? What's that looking like? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think that it's about a misunderstanding. It's about language, faulty definitions and fear. I think that is what is at the root of it. Like you mentioned, when people hear the word defund police, they mm -hmm. think abolish. They think we're gonna get rid of it. And like, that's not even a concept that they could wrap their mind around. I don't think that's a concept any of us could wrap our mind around. Like how do you just all of a sudden create a vacuum where, you know, public safety used to be <laughs> like, and so the first thing is, you know, you have to look at it and say, okay, well, as a society, we've pretty much defunded the entire social safety net, education, mental health, substance use, housing. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We've slowly defunded all of the things that do preventative and proactive care. And so really what it is, and I love you know, that idea of, of the reimagining, like let's imagine something different than what it is. Um, you know, we're having to, you know, send this more expensive police jail option on, you know, into these situations that used to be funded in a, in a different way. And so I think that if people get a more clear understanding of the appropriate roles and responsibilities of police, and some of that comes by, you know, understanding, you know, the clear look at the statistics around calls, like there's really only about one to 10% of police calls that are violent in progress calls. So the rest aren't, like the rest are something else that means that they could potentially be handled by somebody else. Um, you know, so when, you know, we have, and also that idea that there's a disproportionate amount of taxpayer money that goes to police budgets. If you look at like a lot of the pie charts that you get from the cities, it's like, wow, look at that. And then, you know, you have like the library has <laughs> little tiny chart. It's almost like one of those where at the bottom of the chart, they're like too small to even quantify. You know, here's these agencies that like, they don't even fit on the pie chart because like, it's so tiny, they can't even have their own color. Um, and so I think that, you know, around the language of defunding, it's like, you need to reimagine that it is not about abolishing. It's about utilizing taxpayer funds in a way that is appropriate to the solution that we are trying to create. Um, the other thing is about faulty definitions. I think that it's ingrained in much of our society that police or public safety is synonymous with policing. And that's just not true. Like public, like I mentioned earlier, when you look at crime not being connected to policing issues, it's connected to public health and social safety mm -hmm. issues. So what's going to make those communities safer? Not more police not more, you know, not more of that. Like, so it's that faulty definition where people have to go, okay, I may have been taught that public safety means, you know, officer friendly, but does it really? Like, let's reimagine what the word public safety might look like. I mean, there's, you know, um, communities in Alaska where there are, they don't have officers. They're still safe. 
the community makes it safe. They redefined what public safety looked at, you know. Here in Phoenix, there's areas where they don't call for police and police don't go. They have created their own way of doing public safety. Um, so it's, they're not synonymous with each other. And I think we need to talk about what really makes the public safe. And it may not be the way that we've been taught. And the last, you know, unfortunately is fear. You know, it's fear driven. Um, not only just, but based on the messages that, that a lot of people have gained over their entire lives, but also the fear that's being rammed down people's throats right now. You know, they're being, you know, certain leaders are convincing everybody that without law and order, like it's going to be chaos and, you know, we're all going to be in danger. And, you know, even unfortunately, many of the police unions are putting out that kind of message, like in Austin, you know, they put up a bunch of billboards that said, you know, enter at your own risk because they got some of their money deflected. And so it's, it's very real that, you know, fear makes people want to stay where they are comfortable. And unfortunately, we're never going to be able to reimagine public safety if we want to stay comfortable. So if we get uncomfortable and we're <laughs> able to reimagine, right? You know, you just said the word reimagine, reimagining a lot. What would our current policing yeah. system across the United States look like if we lived in a more just and equitable world? Mm. You know, to me, I mean, it's, it's going to look different to, you know, to everybody. Um, and this is something that I've, you know, I've really had to think about, you know, one of the, the very cool things about CAHOOTS too, is we have such a, we have a lot of diversity within our, our staffing that, you know, for example, you know, one of our amazing, brave African-American women that works on the team, her father was killed by police in the city mm. that we work in. Um, me, on the other hand, you know, I've been in public safety for 22 years. I've been around it. I'm married to an officer who's been on the streets for 21 years. So we have very different, like you would think that we were coming into this from very different um, lenses. But we have the same values and the same beliefs and the same like vision for the world, like the vision of what we want to see. And that just shows that you may be coming from totally different places, um, but your vision can be the same. Um, so policing would be vastly different. Um, it would be one that's funded, staff, and trained based on appropriate roles and responsibilities. You know, if violent in-progress calls are only 1% to 10% of what the police do, then maybe we only need 1% to 10% of police, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a, you know, if it, you know, you look at that research and say, okay, like, you know, let's make it match the, the type of calls that you're needed for. Maybe a little extra just in case things kind of, you know, we, we need that armed response, but, you know, we don't need you to respond to the things that you're inappropriate for. Um, you know, police would no longer be the social safety net. Like we would figure out the appropriate spaces for, you know, the appropriate professionals to be that social safety net. Um, police would no longer respond, yeah, to issues that are not crimes in progress. You know, issues that do not require an armed response. You know, because that's one of the things that CAHOOTS does is like when we show up only, like we've already immediately eliminated an armed responder being on scene. Yeah. So, and communities would be empowered to define and design what their public safety looks like. Like they would have to sit down and, you know, and everybody needs at the, you know, to be at the table, marginalized, oppressed, like all of the demographics of the community need to be there from the imagining to the inception, like throughout the whole entire thing, make it very community-based. The whole system would be preventative and proactive. You know, unfortunately, you know, we're such a reactive system. The policing is such a reactive. They react to stuff. Um, 
And so a whole different world that's just and equitable would be not having reactions based on fear, over-exaggerated threat, and a warrior mentality. And I think, you know, depending on what certain, when we think about training for police departments and training for mental health practitioners, it's, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's clearly different. Do you see that there's been any overlap or, or, you know, mental health professionals or like your department, do they train police departments ever in de-escalation or some of these techniques? Because we know we're not in a reality right now where only one to 10% of police are getting called out, right? In, in lots of places. So, um, you know, is, do, do you hear about these models where police are starting to be trained in some of these techniques or is it still very separate in many places? Um, I think, you know, police have recognized that they've had to be that kind of social safety net and that they were going to be sent to calls that, you know, you know, th this idea of the percentage of mentally ill people that have, you know, an exponentially higher chance of being killed mm -hmm. by police, you know, that's been around mm -hmm. for a while. So departments have tried to, you know, there's a lot of crisis intervention teams. There's um, where it used to be they just that would be like a specialized unit like now every you know i'm finding that a lot of places they're training that across the board plus they're bringing de-escalation and kind of mental health training into the academy the problem is is officers are still being trained mm. on a threat model like they're still being trained to focus on you know that kill or be killed like and so when you go into a situation with a heightened threat mm. response a, you know, a mentality that everybody is out to kill you and zero tolerance mm -hmm. for risk. It's, you know, you could train them in all of the best mental health and you could take the most um, empathetic, compassionate, humanistic officer. But if you're going to train out all of the, you know, so that they can respond in that, you know, that one situation that none of us wants to, I mean, I don't want to be a police officer. I do not want to run into an active shooter at a school. That is not something that I am, I'm interested in, in doing. And so to make a human be able to do that, you have to train them in a certain way and it's, you just can't switch that on and off. And so I think it's good that they're continuing to do that training. But what I don't think is good is when they say, look, we've got it we do the same work as a mental health professional who like even on cahoots, we have five to six, 500 to 600 hours of training. That is very different than a 40 hour class. You know, it's like, you've got professionals who are good at handling in progress, violent calls, and you have professionals who are good at dealing with issues that don't require an armed response. Which is the majority of yeah. the cases, right? Which, which is the, yeah, which is the majority, which is good. I mean, I think we'd all love to be, live in a world where, you know, where people aren't hurting each other. Well, we really appreciate your time today, Michelle. Um, you've shed light on uh, a lot of topics that I think have, you know, like we said, have been debates in sort of pop culture and on the news and just, I think, have also um, given people maybe some knowledge that they never even realized models like this exist and can be possible um, to, you know, help our, for the, for the better of our communities out there from a health perspective. So um, what we always kind of ask everybody is at the end, if there's any social media platforms that we can find you on, mm -hmm. um, any organizations that we should be following to learn more about equity and, and social justice in this, this type of area. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. I'll share that with you. I do realize I did not answer one of your questions about other agencies that are looking at our model. Um, so Olympia Washington has started a model based on ours. Um, in fact, their current police chief was a Eugene officer when Kahoot started in Eugene. So he was like, nope, we need this thing. Even though people are like, that's, you can't. He's like, yes, yes, you can. And we're going to. Um, so Denver's rolling out something. We're in talks with Portland and Salem, Oregon. Uh, multiple cities in California, as well as Victoria, British Columbia, is talking to us about our model. So since May, we've actually received requests from over 400 wow. communities in wow. North America. And so we've been going and doing presentations to their leaders, talking to them about what this model would look like. And, you know, particularly about it's not a cookie cutter. You're not just going to take us and plunk us down into this situation. But many of those communities are now in like the feasibility community discussion and budgeting discussions for their next fiscal year. Um, there's also the CAHOOTS Act, which has been presented to Congress. Um, which is going to provide funding for communities who want to start a cahoot style model. So there's, there's some exciting stuff that's going out there. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to see some changes. I think everybody's, a lot of people are on board with seeing something different. Something's mm -hmm. got to change. Um, but social media, yep, um, whitebirdclinic.org. In fact, um, they, got, they have a lot of information about our, our parent agency and about Cahoots. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, um, we're on YouTube. In fact, uh, the YouTube channel, there's some really great old, like, 1975 <laughs> video of Whitebirds. <laughs> if you want to, like, see what it was like back in the day. <laughs> There's some really like they dug out some reel to reel probably to show to show those things. Um, we follow a lot of you know organizations, obviously the big ones like ACLU and AACP um, for our guidance. Uh, we also like the Justice Collaborative, uh, the Marshall Project, Campaign Zero. Um, in California, they have Mental Health First. Um, and then on the East Coast, CCIT, NYC. And we like to follow a lot of lo local groups because we like to keep ours very local um, just to make sure that we're meeting, you know, the needs of, and so like Black Unity is a big one that's going to help, like their founders were the ones that were willing to come in and do the personal training to us about uh, communities of color. Um, just harm reduction groups and other mutual aid groups. Um, it's just important to keep unlearning and, you know, kind of relearning. And thankfully, you know, there's more BIPOC voices that are in mainstream and a lot of non-BIPOC people are willing to seek out those voices that they weren't before um, to be, you know, anti-racist. You know, I personally, I know I have my own reading list and I'm kind of just practicing sitting back, shutting up and listening to learn and not respond. Beautiful. You, and I'm going to link back to all of those references. Thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you just so much for your time today, just shedding light on so many things, like Noelle said, you know, some things that folks may not even be aware of. Next week, we are joined by Asia Johnson, Bail Disruptor and Communications Associate for the Bail Project. We'll explore how freedom isn't free, unpack the pretrial system, and discuss the need for bail reform. The Unpacked Project is produced by Vicki Lee, branding and marketing by Raquel Avalos. Show us some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. And to stay connected and up to date, follow us on Instagram at the underscore Unpacked Project. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. We'll see you next week. Peace. Hey, bye. <laughs>